Galatians 5, beginning in verse 16. Hear now the living and abiding word of God. I say then, walk in the Spirit, and you shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh. For the flesh lusts against the Spirit, and the Spirit against the flesh. And these are contrary to one another, so that you do not do the things that you wish. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. Now the works of the flesh are evident, which are adultery, fornication, uncleanness, lewdness, idolatry, sorcery, hatred, contentions, jealousies, outbursts of wrath, selfish ambitions, dissensions, heresies, envy, murders, drunkenness, revelries, and the like, of which I tell you beforehand, just as I also told you in time past, that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. All of God's people said, Amen. Amen. You may be seated. Let us go to the Lord in prayer now. Almighty God, we give thanks to you for this opportunity we have to hear your word, to consider it, to meditate upon it, to apply it to ourselves. But we know that without the work of the Holy Spirit granting illumination, granting this application to our hearts, that this will not happen. So we ask, Holy Spirit, that you would come, that you would open our eyes to behold wondrous things out of your word, that we would come away with a strengthened faith and a strengthened love for you, that the work of the Holy Spirit would be in us, as is described in this passage. And we pray in the name of Christ. Amen. Well, brothers and sisters, when we read about the Christian life in the Bible, we find that the Bible presents the Christian life as a life of immense blessing and privilege. We are those who have been blessed in the beloved, in Jesus Christ. We have received all, every spiritual gift in the heavenly places, it says in Ephesians chapter 1. We've been seated with Christ. We have this inheritance that we're looking forward to. And so we see from all of that that the Christian life is an amazing blessing. To be a follower of Christ is the best life. It is the good life. And yet it is a life of conflict and difficulty. Both are true, right? Both are true about the Christian life. We are immensely blessed to follow Jesus Christ. We have the good life in him But this good life comes with difficulty, it comes with conflict, it is a life of battle. And in this passage, we have presented to us the conflict, the internal spiritual conflict that every Christian engages in, because the Holy Spirit indwells each Christian. And to be redeemed and to follow Christ is indeed worth losing everything else in this life. It's worth losing everything this world has to offer. It's certainly worth parting from all of our sins and all of their false promises. But it is going to come with significant spiritual conflict if we are going to see that take place. But I want us to see in our passage is that God is committed to seeing this battle followed through in us and his victory being demonstrated in us. Jesus Christ has uh, died and risen again to redeem us from sin. The Holy Spirit has come to indwell us within our hearts to enable us to overcome sin and to be one day fully set free to sin no more. And our God will have the victory in us. Now, before we get into the the verses and the specifics of these uh, verses, I want to lay three foundation stones, if you will, uh, from Galatians uh, to set our uh, understanding of this passage. These three foundation stones are just teachings that Galatians has already established, and it's important that we review them as we proceed through this letter. So let's first look at Galatians 1, verses 3 through 5. This is how Paul opened Galatians. He spoke about the purpose of God, the the accomplishment of the gospel in Galatians 1, 3 through 5. And this is a very important verse for understanding the whole letter. So I often come back to it. Paul writes, Grace to you and peace from God the Father and our Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins, 
that he might deliver us from this present evil age, according to the will of our God and Father, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. So we are told here, why did Christ give himself? He gave himself to deliver you from this present evil age with all of its destruction and its corruption and its enslavement. And when we were in those verses, uh, perhaps uh, back in April of this last year, I was expressing how this is a comprehensive deliverance that Jesus brings. He, he delivers us from the guilt of our sins, that guilt that would condemn us to eternal judgment. He, he delivers us from the bondage of sin, the enslavement that comes from this present evil age. He breaks the chains. As Psalm 107 expresses it, God breaks our chains in pieces. That is what he has come to do in his salvation. And we are freed from uh, death and judgment to come as well. Jesus has done all of this for us. Now another foundation stone is found in Galatians 2 verse 20. This is, of course, the most often memorized verse in Galatians. It's expressing an important uh, teaching in Galatians. Galatians 2.20 Paul says, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. What makes someone a true Christian? What makes one a true Christian is not simply whether you profess to be a Christian whether you attend a church or whether you have been baptized with water, though all of those things are important and good. I'm not diminishing any of those. Those ought to be the marks of a true Christian as well. But my point is that what makes one a Christian, one who is alive to the things of God, one who has been granted the gift of new birth, is union with Christ. A Christian absolutely, indispensably, is one who is in union with Jesus Christ. And that is what Paul expresses. He says, Christ lives in me. I I no longer live. I I now live by faith in the Son of God. And this, this union, this connection with Jesus means that we are alive now because Jesus is alive. He he rose again from the dead. And so we are alive in him. A Christian is one who is alive to the things of God, one who is spiritually alive. Alive. So this is a second foundation stone that is presupposed in what we are going to study in Galatians 5. The third foundation stone of review is that all Christians are recipients of the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit. This is taught many times in Galatians, but I'll just direct your attention to Galatians 4, 6-7. through 7. And in fact, Paul says here that This is an indispensable marker of our adoption is that we have the Spirit. He says, Because you are sons, God has sent forth the Spirit of his Son into your hearts, crying out, Abba, Father. Therefore you are no longer a slave, but a son, and if a son, then an heir of God through Christ. And so this is indispensable, again, that we have the Holy Spirit of God. This is the Spirit that we read about just uh, minutes ago when we were in Ezekiel 36. You remember those remarkable promises of the Spirit being given? This old stony heart would be turned into a heart of flesh. The Spirit would come not only to cleanse us of sin, but also to cause us to walk in the ways of God. And that's the fulfillment. This is the fulfillment of that promise in Ezekiel 36. So keep these foundational truths in mind as we go into the passage now, as we look here at the battle of the flesh, uh, the spirit against the flesh, and the flesh against the spirit. So let's read verses 16 through 17 now and see what Paul has to say about this conflict. I say then, walk in the spirit, and you shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh. For the flesh lusts against the spirit and the spirit against the flesh. And these are contrary to one another so that you do not do the things that you wish. So we're given an exhortation here, brothers and sisters. We are told to do something. We are told to walk in the spirit. The idea is that we have been given the spirit 
And now we actually have the ability to do the things that please God. We can say no to sin, and we can say yes to righteousness. To the degree that we walk in accord with the Spirit, we walk in step with the Spirit's guidance and the Spirit's will, to that degree we will be saying no to our sinful desires. And kids, this is the first point in your notes. Number one, the Holy Spirit gives you power to say no to sin. The Holy Spirit gives you power to say no to sin. And sometimes in conversation with my children, they've expressed to me that, Daddy, it's very hard to do the right thing. I'm like, I know, you're right. It is hard at times to do the right thing. Our flesh feels strong, but if you have the Spirit of God, you can say no. You can overcome. You can win that battle at that point. And I, and I tell them, you ask your Father in heaven to help you the next time that temptation comes to say no to sin. And Jesus Christ will help you overcome. The Holy Spirit will help you overcome. Now what Paul is telling us in these verses is that there's this battle taking place within us. This conflict playing out. And the reason for this is that the Holy Spirit has come into the life of every true Christian. Has taken up residence. And that Holy Spirit has a commitment in our lives to seeing sin done away with. And that means that we, if we are Christians, we're going to experience this conflict. We're going to feel it. We're going to think about it. We're going to have these desires that at times contrast with one another. At times we will perhaps have fleshly desires rise up within us. We'll want to do something which is displeasing to God. But then at other times, the Spirit of God is going to so convict and constrain and direct us that we are going to look at that sinful desire and say, I want to have nothing to do with that anymore. When Paul uses the word flesh in this context, he is particularly referring to our fallen human nature. He's not simply talking about our physical existence, but he's talking about this fallen human nature, which we have read earlier in Galatians, has been crucified with Christ. There is very much a real sense in which the flesh is dead and dying. Uh, On one hand, it is dead, the Bible says, but on the other hand, it exercises a degree of influence within us. We need to think, though, about our new position, our new identity, uh, because Galatians makes very clear that if we are in Christ, we are a new creation. If we are in Christ, the Spirit of God indwells us. We are in union with Him. These are all new things that are not true of other people that are outside of Christ. They're different. And in order to understand this uh, idea of either being in the flesh or in the spirit, let me read for you Romans chapter 8, verses 8 through 9. And as you read these verses with me, you'll see that Paul is expressing that you're either in the flesh or in the spirit. They're, They're two separate spiritual locations, as it were, and you can't be in both at the same time in this passage. So let's look at that. Romans 8, 8 through 9. So then, those who are in the flesh cannot please God. But you are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if indeed the Spirit of God dwells in you. Now, if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he is not his. So Paul, in using the language of flesh and spirit in this passage, he's saying to us, you are either in the realm of the flesh or in the realm of the Spirit, You cannot be in both at the same time, he says, because if you don't have the Spirit of God, you don't even belong to Jesus Christ. And now some have put it this way, when you you come to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, when you receive new life, you have a new spiritual address. Your old address was once in the flesh, in, in the old Adam. But your new address is in the second Adam, in Christ, and in the Spirit. So there is a fundamental change of position that has happened when we become Christians. We have the indwelling spirit, and now that that spirit has taken up residence, it's as if any remnants of our old sinful nature is just, now it's just a mopping up operation of getting rid of all of that. It's the house cleaning. It's like taking up residence in this beat up old 
house that's all ripped up and, and filled with junk, and the Spirit comes and starts cleaning house. There is a new master in that house, and that house is going to be cleansed and cleansed fully by the last day. So as we think about this battle, it's, important, it's an important application question for each of us to consider is this. Do you experience the internal conflict described in verse 17? Do you know something about the, the spirit waging war against your flesh and then your flesh rising up and trying to fight back? Do you, have you experienced that tension in the Christian life? Now, it's a very important question for you to honestly answer because if you do not know that battle, if you do not know that tension, then you may not be a Christian. Indeed, every Christian must have some awareness of this battle, this internal conflict that takes place, with true spirit-driven desires causing us to walk in the right way, fighting against our sin. Now, as we think about this battle, let let us seek to trace out the differences between the natural man, the one in the flesh that Romans 8 described, and the spiritual man, the one who has the Spirit of God. What are the differences? Because you might be thinking of of people that, you know, are not Christians, people that are unbelievers, and you you might say, I know many non-Christians who are relatively kind people, Generous people, they don't get into much trouble, they even apologize for things that they do to hurt others, and you think, well, is that really that that different? Is there such a fundamental difference? I've seen non-Christians seek to apologize for things or seek to change behavior. Indeed, we can think of examples like that, but there are some fundamental spiritual differences between the natural man, described as being in the flesh in Romans 8, and the one who has the Spirit of God, on the other hand. For example, a natural man may indeed experience sadness or sorrow because of the effects or the consequences of sin. This does happen. People will become sad about how behaviors in their lives become destructive. They might be sad about the loss of a relationship or the effects upon their health. There may even be a sense of shamefulness at certain behaviors, especially those behaviors that society is not accepting of. Uh, They feel that that sense of shame or uh, that being put outside because of their behavior, if it's a shameful behavior. Uh, The natural man may indeed have some outward improvements of behavior. They can do things to change to some degree how much they uh, engage in certain activities. And the Bible says that their conscience can even be disturbed. Everybody has a conscience. And in Romans 2, it says that their conscience can accuse them. But there is still a difference between the natural man and the spiritual man. What is lacking in the natural man? There is lacking in the natural man a real hatred of sin itself rather than just not liking the consequences of it. And there is lacking in the natural man a love for God rather than the love for the idols that has so long persisted in that natural man. There's not a love for God that motivates and directs a change of behavior. The natural man does not have the power to resist sin and do what pleases God with a heart of faith because they do not have a heart of faith. Of course, there being no faith in Christ, they are not saved from their sinful condition because we are only saved by believing in the Redeemer, Jesus Christ. And any sorrow from sin in the natural man is due to the effects of sin, the loss of something else that they hold dear. The natural man does not have this internal spiritual conflict. It may be some other kind of confliction, some other kind of difficulty and tension, but it is not a tension or difficulty that is produced by the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit, causing them to hate sin and to love righteousness. And there's different ways of dealing with sin uh, amongst natural people. Sometimes they will seek to justify sin as being good. This happens when sin is celebrated as a virtue, and there's no need to worry about it. If it's a virtue, we should rather applaud it and promote it and propagate it. Uh, This is described in Romans 1. It says that they not only... Uh, do these sinful things, but they give hearty approval to those who do them. They, they celebrate sin. They praise it as good. We've seen plenty of this. Uh, 
Sin may be justified on one hand, but it can also be diminished as not being a very big deal at all. Outbursts of wrath become just about having Irish blood in you. It's not really that big a deal. It's just something you received uh, from your family. It's just the way that you all work through things. Using the name of God in vain just becomes a habit you got. People, your coworkers do it. Seems to be every American does it. What's the big deal? Why are you making such a big deal about this problem? So sin can be diminished. It can be justified. Or it can be renamed altogether as something else or something virtuous. Idolatry might become exploring other faiths. Sounds rather neutral. Sexual impurity can be named having a good time. Selfish ambition may become striving for a better you, when in fact it's just selfish ambition at the root of things. But the Christian who has the Spirit of God within them, they will not justify sin, they will not diminish sin, they will not rename sin. They will kill sin. The Christian cannot rest content with sin in their lives. They must do battle with it because the Spirit constrains them to do battle. The Spirit is zealous for purity. The Spirit is zealous to accomplish His work of redemption that He has been sent by the Father and by the Son to do. And that is the total eradication of sin in our lives. And so if you are a Christian, you will understand this conflict. You will be engaged in this battle. Now that brings us to verse 18, which speaks about one of the roles of the Spirit of God in our lives, which is to lead us. This, this new animating, life-giving principle of the Spirit is not only a principle or a power, but he is a person. And this person leads us and guides us in the way that we should go. Look at verse 18. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. He mentions the law here again because, of course, the law uh, condemns us, condemns natural man. Uh, and apart from the redeeming grace of Jesus Christ, we're just stuck. We can't fulfill the requirements of the law. The law just sits there as this heavy weight of condemnation upon us. But when the Spirit comes, we're not under that condemnation anymore, and we're not under these demands that we can't uh, keep. And, but now we actually are given power to do them and to walk in the ways of God. And so Paul is saying, if you are led by the Spirit... And this language of the leading of the Holy Spirit is important for us to understand. It's the idea of the Spirit as a guide to where we are to go. You might almost picture it like the Spirit holding your hand and, and pointing the way that you should go. And it grabs you and says, not, not that way. Let's go this way. This is the way of Christ. Go this way. And children, this is the second point in your notes. Number two, the Holy Spirit is a good teacher who leads us in the right direction. The Holy Spirit is a good teacher who leads us in the right direction. And as we think about that language of the leading of the Holy Spirit, I want to speak a little bit about sometimes how this language, I think, has been misused, uh, perhaps because of the influence of Pentecostal or charismatic theology and the popular uses of the leading of the Holy Spirit. Sometimes this language has been seen in a very mystical, esoteric, uh, or random kind of way. Sometimes people will use this popular language of God told me to do this, God told me to say this, or the Holy Spirit told me, I need to tell you this. And sometimes it's used for the justification of various prophetic announcements. And sometimes, sadly, it is used for people to justify very wrong perspectives that the Spirit of God most certainly did not tell them to do or say when it's in conflict with the Word of God, most obviously. And we have to be careful about such language because, as we know, we have a variety of influencers within us. Of course, we have our old sinful flesh, which may be trying to get us to go a certain way. We are physical people who get hungry or tired, and we can be influenced by those things. And so we have to be careful about that kind of language where we make this direct one-to-one -one equivalence between the exact thing that we chose to do and what the Holy Spirit then said to do. Nevertheless, 
with those caveats, I want us to understand that the leading of the Holy Spirit of God is a real thing described in this passage. Uh, We dare not uh, be so concerned to uh, reject the abuses of this language such that we would forget the value and the blessing that is described here. The, The Holy Spirit does indeed work within us and direct us to go in the right way and helps us, even in the minute decisions that we have to make. The Holy Spirit helps us. We're in a difficult conversation. We need to know the right thing to say. We pray for wisdom. And guess what? The Holy Spirit will lead us in wisdom and will grant us the words to speak. We're in the midst of temptation and difficulty and it feels that we are about to give in to sin, but then we cry out to God and then what does the Holy Spirit do but lead us to do the will of God? This is a real thing that is described in this passage. Now, rather than being an esoteric and mystical concept that's strange, and we need to see it as actually quite simple in, in its goal. The Spirit of God has a very straightforward purpose. And by straightforward, I mean the Word of God tells us what the Spirit of God is going to lead us to do. Now, to help us in understanding this language, look at, again at Romans 8. And in verses 13 through 14, Paul uses the same language of led by the Spirit of God. So let's look at this parallel. This will help us, I think, in grasping what the Spirit's leading is about. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For as many as are led by the Spirit of God... These are the sons of God. Okay, so if we connect these uh, phrases, if we connect verse 14 to verse 13, what was the focus of verse 13? Well, it is the killing of sin in our life. It is the mortification of the old flesh by the power of the Spirit. Now, if we connect those two, we see that contextually, clearly, the Spirit comes and leads us to do what? To kill sin in our lives and to obey the Lord. The Spirit has taken up residence within us to make us more like Christ, to conform us to the image of Christ. It is a very simple purpose, and the Spirit is effective in bringing that purpose about. Now, this should strengthen us, brothers and sisters, as we face the battle of the Christian life each day. This should encourage us to know that we have the Spirit of God. And if we have the Spirit of God, we have a helper. We have a very powerful helper, a very present helper that we can seek help from when we need guidance. We can indeed pray for wisdom. We can indeed pray for insight. We can pray for strength for every moment that we face of difficulty. So now we go on to this list that Paul gives us, the works of the flesh in verses 19 through 21. And, of course, we know that Galatians 5 contains two different lists. Uh, This list concerning the works of the flesh, verses 19 through 21, and then the list that we call the fruit of the Spirit in verses 22 through 24. It makes sense that Paul would give us these two lists because he's talking about the battle of the flesh against the Spirit and the Spirit against the flesh. So he's going to illustrate for us by uh, the specific listing of behaviors and, and acti- actions and sins or, or virtues to say to us, here are the two different kinds of lives I'm describing, where the Spirit of God is indwelling, we're going to see the fruit of the Spirit, and where there is no Spirit of God, we're just going to see works of the flesh repeated ad nauseum over and over again without repentance or change. As I was looking at these lists, I was somewhat inclined to do a separate message on the works of the flesh first and then the fruit of the Spirit second. I decided to put the works of the flesh into this message because I want to give more time to the fruit of the Spirit. Well, why? Because I want to be positive in my focus about what the Spirit of God is going to bring about. And certainly we could take plenty of time and go through all of the items on this list concerning the works of the flesh. We could do detailed word studies of them and illustrate every single one of them. But at this point, I've chosen not to because I want to focus upon the victory that the Spirit has. I think, actually, that these 
works of the flesh are quite obvious in their nature. In fact, Paul says as much. He says the works of the flesh are evident or manifest. There's not really any question about what they look like. In addition to that, I came across a statement from Pastor John Brown. He was a Scottish pastor, and as he commented on this list of the works of the flesh, I was it was noteworthy how he responded to this. And you find this sometimes, I think, in some of the older commentators on Scripture. They have a greater degree of caution even about speaking about sin. Certainly they speak about it in the sense of calling us to repentance concerning sin, but they also have a lot of caution because they take, take these things rather soberly and seriously. Listen to what John Brown said. He said, To enter into a minute description of the different crimes which are here mentioned could serve no good purpose and might serve some bad ones. There are immoral practices which are not even to be named among Christians, and there are others which, though they must be named, should scarcely be more than named. There are certain vices, and a number of them are mentioned in this catalog, which can scarcely be made the objects of steady intellectual contemplation without tainting in some degree the purity of the mind. This should be something of our response to these different works of the flesh. You know, if we're thinking Christianly, if we have the Spirit of God, if we are growing in Christ's likeness, we should have a sense of abhorrence to the works of the flesh. Anytime they show up, particularly when they show up in any degree in our lives, we need to have a sense of abhorrence and a desire to turn away from them. And he even says if we were to intellectually contemplate all the specifics of some of these descriptions, it would actually, could actually defile the purity of the mind. Paul says something like that in Ephesians 5 about the works of darkness. He says it's shameful to even speak of the things that are done in secret, but rather our job is simply to expose them, certainly not to have them named amongst us. And so as we look at this list, brothers and sisters, we need to have a sober consideration of this list concerning the works of the flesh. And may it be that if we have the Spirit of God within us, increasingly we have a sense of shock and abhorrence about sin. Now for those that have habitually practiced sinful behaviors, the effect is that the conscience is hardened, the sensitivity to sin becomes diminished, and what should be shocking and detestable becomes familiar and comfortable to people. But the Holy Spirit of God will not allow us to remain comfortable and familiar with sin. The Holy Spirit has come to wage war against our sinful desires. And if there is a war going on, you can be sure it's not comfortable and familiar and calm and tranquil within us in that regard. So let me read this list once again. And then instead of detailing in, in great description all the specifics of these words, I just want to give a list of categorizations of them, and these are my categorizations. I think they have some validity, but they will help us, I think, in sensing the emphasis of what Paul is warning us about. So I'll read the list in verse 19 through 21. Now the works of the flesh are evident, which are adultery, fornication, uncleanness, lewdness, idolatry, sorcery, Hatred, contentions, jealousies, outbursts of wrath, selfish ambitions, dissensions, heresies, envy, murders, drunkenness, revelries, and the like. Now as I list these, uh, I am just be aware I am working from the traditional Greek text that's translated in the New King James. If you have a Bible translation based on a modern critical text, such as the ESV or the NASB, you will note that there are two items missing from the list, which is adulteries and murders. Uh, And the discussion about textual criticism can wait for another day, uh, but I would recommend that you consider using a translation based primarily on the the traditional text. There are reasons which I could explain offline, but be aware that that is one of the reasons for the difference in the listings that you may see. So let's look at these categories. What do we see here in the works of the flesh? Well, the first category of sins contains four items all related under this umbrella of sexual sins. Fornication, uncleanness, lewdness. Different descriptions of how sexual sin manifests itself. Uh, And then we have the second category. Two sins related 
to the practice of false religion, but as we heard from our brother Pastor Kevin, of course, we we shouldn't have in our minds the uh, limitation of the word idolatry to some sort of pagan religion that has a name to it. Idolatry is a universal problem that is evident in all of our sins uh, that manifest themselves as some degree of idolatry. And sorcery is mentioned as well. The third category contains nine sins that relate to matters of human relationships and relational conflict. Contention, jealousy, anger, envy, murders, all these different ways in which our, our hostility towards other people, our conflicts with other people manifest themselves in destructive ways. And then the fourth category contains two sins related to the loss of self-control or intemperance, drunkenness and revelings. The word revelings might be basically translated as wild parties. Uh, It's basically the idea of reveling sort of behavior. Loss of self-control, giving oneself over to one's lusts wholly. Now as you look at these different categories and these different sins, what you might notice is what predominates on Paul's list, at least in terms of number of items listed, is sexual sin and divisive, unloving behavior that results in conflict between people. It's interesting to me that Paul focuses upon that. It seems like he has a major concern actually about conflict. He's going to talk about, he actually already talked about biting and devouring one another in verse 15. He's concerned about conflict in the churches of Galatia. And so he's going to say, whenever you see this kind of conflict behavior where people will not forgive, they give way to anger, they're fighting with one another, they're creating these divisive parties, he says, now you're seeing the works of the flesh. And we know that this list is not comprehensive. It doesn't include everything one could list. He says, and things like these. We could go on all day listing different kinds of sins and the way in which the sinful nature manifests itself. And Paul gives to us a very solemn warning at the end of verse 21. He says, those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Paul is saying if these behaviors are habitually and unrepentantly practiced, they will keep someone out of God's kingdom. People who do these things, they do not turn from them, they do not abhor their sins, they do not believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and uh, hate their sin and forsake it, they will not inherit the kingdom of God. Now what we learn from this, if we bring all of this together in Galatians, is that Paul insists on two equally valid truths that we must understand. And those two truths are these. He has taught us in Galatians that we are justified, declared righteous in God's sight by trusting in Christ alone. Our works, our rituals, they do not contribute one iota to our right standing with God. He has taught us that very plainly in Galatians. However, Paul also insists that every Christian united to Christ who has the Holy Spirit of God cannot and will not go on living unrepentantly a sinful life as described in this list of the works of the flesh. In other words, repentance is an absolute necessity in the Christian life. And so we have to see these things in that light, brothers and sisters. We must not justify anything that goes in this list. If we have given way to any degree, if we have justified or ignored any of these works of the flesh, we are called to repent and forsake them. And sometimes these things are diminished. I think hatred in the heart is often diminished. Contention with others is often diminished. Outbursts of anger, frequently justified. How many times have you heard someone expressing hatred and contention with someone else and they they feel justified in their hatred and their contention uh, because of the offenses that have been committed against them. They are so dead set upon the justice of their response when in fact the word of God says these are works of the flesh. How many justify their divisive behavior from brothers and sisters in Christ because they have such a negative judgment about someone else and they they think that their division and their slanderous speech are all quite warranted and justified under the circumstances, maybe even a righteous cause. And yet Paul says that those who do these things and will not repent of them will not inherit the kingdom of God. 
Let's soberly apply the words of Paul. This passage says that the man or woman who is habitually given to sexual sin and does not repent will not inherit the kingdom of God. It says that those who are given to drunkenness and wild parties who do not repent of that behavior, they will not inherit the kingdom of God. It says that those who are participating in idolatry and sorcery and who will not repent and forsake their idols, turn to Christ, they will not inherit the kingdom of God. And so we cannot countenance any version of, of purported Christianity that denies the necessity of repentance from these things. Otherwise, we are not faithful to what Paul describes here about the works of the flesh. Now again, I come back to that question I asked earlier, brothers and sisters. Is there a battle within you against these things? This is the list of the things we are to do battle with, with the power of the Holy Spirit. Are you fighting against these things? Kids, this is the third point in your notes. Number three, we are called to do battle against all these works of the flesh. If you want to identify the enemy that you are to fight, that you are to pray against, that you are to rise up in the strength of the Spirit to turn away from, these, this is a starting list. It's not the only list in the Bible, but it is indeed a list of very common ways in which the flesh shows itself. And so if you are struggling with, with hatred in your heart or you're struggling with outbursts of wrath in your life and in your, your relationships, are you fighting against these things with the power of the Spirit of God? Or have you justified them? If the Spirit of God is there, indeed you will not rest content with the manifestations of sin in your life. You will be very bothered by the presence of these things in your life. If you have become too familiar and too comfortable with these things, may it be that God awakens you to the danger of these things. Are you aware of, of selfish ambition in your life that, that is making your life all about you and me and me and me as the repeated pronoun in your thoughts and in your actions? Well, that is one of the things that is the work of the flesh that is described here, the selfish ambition, the striving for one's own interests. And so clearly, brothers and sisters, what we've learned is if we have the Spirit of God, we cannot and we will not remain familiar, comfortable, and apathetic with sin in our life. The Spirit of God will not allow us to stay in such a position We will have a holy and a zealous discontentment to kill sin in our lives. We will not rest content with its presence, which means even the least occurrences of sin as we grow in holiness, we will become more and more sensitive to those things. And yes, this is a progressive thing. It's a a growth trajectory in the Christian life. We, We struggle with sin. We are not perfect yet in this life. But as we grow, our sense of holiness will will heighten. Our awareness of sinful words, sinful thinking, sinful actions, we'll be more quick to identify them. We'll be able to call them out as such. And we, we need to then deal with anything and everything that presents itself as a work of the flesh in our lives. There are, I think, many who have walked the road to destruction through apathy, through a sense that they think they really are doing okay when in fact they are not okay. This again is uh, consistent with our brother, Pastor Kevin's exhortation. Let's, let's call it what it is. Let's describe ourselves for who we really are at the present. Let's be honest about these things so that we can turn from them unto God. And I believe that this is perhaps one of the strategies that Satan uses to uh, make people unaware of their desperate spiritual condition is to give them a sense of apathy to uh, tell them that they're doing just fine and then they won't really be aware of what they need to do to address these things in their lives and I I found this particular quote from the screw tape letters often there are valuable little insights in that book concerning things that are consistent with scripture uh, scripture's teaching about temptation And here we have Screwtape writing to his nephew, the demon Wormwood, giving him this counsel. Listen to this 
this perspective that Lewis suggested in his fictional letters. He says, you will say that these are very small sins and doubtless, like all young tempters, you are anxious to be able to report spectacular wickedness. But do remember, the only thing that matters is the extent to which you separate the man from the enemy. It does not matter how small the sins are, provided that their cumulative effect is to edge the man away from the light and out into the nothing. Murder is no better than cards if cards can do the trick. Indeed, the safest road to hell is the gradual one, the gentle slope, soft underfoot, without sudden turnings, without milestones, without signposts. You see, you don't have to do spectacular wickednesses to be condemned to judgment in hell. Spectacular as the, word, the world might refer to them. Of course, they probably wouldn't use that word. That's the demonic uh, language at, at use here that Lewis is suggesting. But big sins, big crimes, you don't have to do those. Because Paul has already told us in Galatians that if we do not continue in all things perfectly in the law, we are cursed. That means all of us, brothers and sisters. We are cursed by the law of God, and we need the Lord Jesus Christ to deliver us from that curse. And we need the Holy Spirit of God to set us free from every occurrence of sin, no matter how small the world might look at it or no matter how small you might think about it right now. One of the safest paths to hell is the one that a person cannot perceive is leading them there. They don't think that they're really in such a desperate state when in fact they are indeed in such a desperate condition. And so what what I'm exhorting us to in light of this passage is to not rest content with the works of the flesh in our lives, to not rest content with wherever you are uh, in the Christian life. We're all at different stages of this work of growth. And I'm thankful to God that as I interact with the brothers and sisters in Christ, I can see uh, each of you in different places with different challenges. And, and wherever you're at in that challenge, what I give thanks and praise to God for is if you're fighting your sin and you're growing in holiness. It's not so much about the measurement in my mind as it is about the fact that the Spirit of God is at work within you, in your growing. We talk about uh, direction, not perfection, many times because it's relevant. We are are indeed seeking perfection, and indeed the Spirit of God will bring us to perfection, but we are not there yet. We are in the battle. One of my favorite sections of the Westminster Confession speaks about sanctification in this way, and it has some phrases that I think are actually quite encouraging to meditate upon that are consistent with what this passage and other passages say. And I want to read those to you. You'll find them in the notes. First, it describes the battle that Galatians is talking about. It says, This sanctification is throughout in the whole man, yet imperfect in this life. There abiding still some remnants of corruption in every part, whence ariseth a continual and irreconcilable war, the flesh lusting against the spirit and the spirit against the flesh. And so this paragraph admits, as the rest of scripture teaches, that there's this battle going on, we're not perfect in this life, it's an irreconcilable war that uh, happens, you're not going to bring the spirit and the flesh to agree with one another, that's never going to take place. But in the next paragraph, it reminds us how the war is won. This is what I find encouraging. It says, In which war, although the remaining corruption for a time may much prevail, yet through the continual supply of strength from the sanctifying Spirit of Christ, the regenerate part doth overcome. And so the saints grow in grace, perfecting holiness in the fear of the Lord. So I love that phrase, the regenerate part doth overcome. The idea is that in this battle, there is a victor. The victor is not the flesh. The victor is the Holy Spirit of God. Children, this is the fourth point in your notes, and the most important point to remember of all these. Number four, Christians will overcome sin because they have the mighty Spirit of God within them. Christians will overcome sin because they have the mighty Spirit of God within them. And so, brothers and sisters, the regenerate part is going to overcome because if the Spirit of God has taken up residence within you, then the Spirit is not going to be content with defeat. The the Lord does not bring us this salvation. The Spirit does not indwell us 
in order to be ultimately defeated and the whole project given up. He who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. Now, as we think about this battle, it's a challenging battle. It's fierce. It's difficult. It's, and it's a long-term battle. The, the confession admitted that. It's going to keep going. And Galatians says that. We're going to keep this battle going. And some of us, we've been uh, looking at the, the news and eyeing the conflict in uh, Eastern Europe taking place between Ukraine and Russia. And when it first broke out, uh, of course, none of us knew or know now how long that conflict will continue. But now that it's gone on for about a year, people are starting to discuss, how long is this battle going to take place? Is this going to be one year, five years, ten years? How long is this going to drag on? And it's sad to think about such a conflict dragging on. Not that we, of course, are experiencing much of the effects of any of this. But I use it as an example about how we need to think about this conflict between the spirit and the flesh in the Christian life. You should not expect, as a Christian, that your battle with sin is going to be done with in a year, or two years, or or five years, or ten years, unless the Lord Jesus calls you to glory quicker, sooner than you may expect. You need to be in it for the long haul. You need to commit yourself to a long-term war. If you live to be a hundred, we'll call it the hundred-year war. If you live to be 90, it's going to be the 90-year war. You live to be 70, it's going to be the 70-year war. You are in this for life. Don't let that discourage you, though, because, again, you have the Spirit of God. You're not alone in this battle. We will see the victory take place. And so I want you to leave not only soberly understanding this battle and realistic about it, but I also want you to leave encouraged Because if you have the Holy Spirit, you are not fighting sin in vain. You will, through the continual supply of the Spirit, overcome. And so let us pray for that work of overcoming now. Let's let's pray. Almighty God, we praise you as a God of power. We thank you for sending us the powerful Holy Spirit into our hearts to testify of our adoption, to empower us, to lead us, to kill sin within us. And we ask, Lord, that you would make us to be zealous in this battle. Please awaken us from any apathy. Awaken us to any justification or diminishment of sin in our lives. Make us to be warriors for righteousness. Grow us in strength. We ask that you would perfect holiness in us and the fear of the Lord. We ask that you would cleanse us from these works of the flesh. And in their place, replace those works of the flesh with the image of Christ, the fruit of the Spirit. We pray this in the name of our Lord. Amen.